0: So now for SEC to bring an insider trading case under the Rule 25, it needs to prove that the insider owes a fiduciary duty to the shareholders.
1: Legislation changes month to month, year to year. But over the last century, the changes have been astounding. Join Karen Woody and her students from Washington and Lee University to dig into 100 years of insider trading law. Welcome back to the second episode of Classroom Insiders. This is the podcast where we discuss the arc and the evolution of insider trading regulation. I'm your host, Professor Karen Woody, and I am here today with one of my students. Please introduce yourself and tell me who you are and a little bit about
0: you. Hello, everyone. I'm Tianjiao, and I'm now a 3 hour student at WML. I'm from China. I studied international business law in Beijing and got my master's degree in Beijing Foreign Studies University. Then I came to WNL and I plan to work in Clifford Chance Beijing office after graduation. I'm really glad that we got a chance here to talk about insider trading. And thank you for inviting me, Professor Ruby.
1: Of course. I'm so glad you're here with us.
0: And so, did you
1: work at Clifford Chance in the Beijing office last summer or how did that come about?
0: Yeah, I had a summer intern in Clifford Chan's Beijing office, and I was doing international business transaction mainly. So I would do some non litigation matter after graduation when I'm w- working. Yeah,
1: fascinating. That will be very interesting.
0: Mm-hmm. So thank you, T, for being here with me to talk about
1: insider trading. Last week we talked a little bit about insider trading and the history from essentially the early nineteen hundreds up through nineteen sixties and the nineteen sort of decade of the nineteen sixties. And so today we're gonna move a little bit beyond the nineteen sixties to the nineteen eighties. But before we get there, what is your general understanding of insider trading after cases like Katie Roberts and Texas Gulf Sulfur?
0: So the announcement of this administrative opinion has also established principles that later in Texas Gulf became the disclosure Abstain Rule. Basically, the rule states that an insider possessing material non-public information must either disclose such information before trading or abstain from trading until the information has been disclosed. So I think this is a brief overview of the last episode of this po- podcast, I think.
1: Yes, that's correct. That's what Ben and I spoke about in the last episode. And so, right, we're still in this era of disclose or abstain, which essentially means in practicality that you just have to refrain from trading. Because the option to disclose the information and make it public information might not be one that everyone can avail themselves of. Instead, really it's a it's a essentially a prohibition against trading if you have material non-public information. And so That seemed to be the rule for quite some time. Did the SEC bring a number of cases
0: in insider trading during the 60s and 70s? Yeah, exactly. So before Powell's confirmation, the SEC had won almost every case in which it was a party from 1941 to 1971. As the Berger and Rankin's courts considered numerous rule 10b5 cases they began to challenge the SEC's interpretation of the extent of Congress' grant of authority. Similarly, some resistance to how broadly the SEC has interpreted the Securities Acts while not rejecting outright the intellectual foundations of insider trading enforcement. As the SEC's legal successes piled up, enforced its rules more aggressively, even requiring institutional investors to develop internal policy changes to guard against insider trading. So yeah, I think the rule later has become so expensive that to some extent, it has discouraged the development of the securities market. As a rule, it's not very pro-business.
1: I see. So essentially it's, as we said, a prohibition really on trading if you're in possession of any material, non-public information. And it sounds like from what you just said, the SEC, was stretching that or pushing that as far as it could. You mentioned that they were getting more aggressive in their enforcement of insider trading regulation and had, it yeah. sounds like, had won nearly every matter in which they were bringing a claim regarding insider trading for a few decades. And so what changes? How does this, the tide turn for the SEC?
0: Well, I think Justice Powell's com- confirmation to the Sup- Supreme Court has changed everything. Basically, okay. because he held a very different opinion from what the Supreme Court before. I see. Okay, so tell us a little bit about Justice Powell. Who was he? Yeah, well, first he came here at WNL to get his Juris Doctor's degree. That's the first thing that came to my mind. He's a WNL and alumni. And also, he was a partner for over a quarter of a century at Huntington & Williams, that is a large law firm in Richmond, Virginia. He practiced primarily in the areas of corporate law, especially in the field of mergers and acquisitions. So Justice Powell came to the Supreme Court with a very strong background in corporate law. He had more experience in securities law than many other members of the court. And I guess another important thing about Justice Powell is that His close interaction with businessmen while lawyering led him to trust their character. That kind of trust, in turn, made him generally hostile to what he saw as excessive regulation, which he thought infringed on free enterprise. And that is why he questioned the SEC's attempt to expand its reach, especially the SEC's use of Section 10b-5. He thought that SEC's rules were unrealistically intended, to guarantee investors' profits in their investments. And also Justice Powell believed that the state's common law of fraud should be the major enforcement theory, and that Rule 10b-5 was part of the federal common law. I think this has partially explained his thoughts when he was writing the Chiarella opinion.
1: Okay, so we'll get to Chiarella next here in a second, but I did want to ask a couple follow-ups to what you just said, because it all sounds very interesting. So. It sounds like you said he was more in favor of insider trading being brought simply as under common law fraud as opposed to under the securities laws, so under 10B5, as yeah. it sounds like, as the SEC had been bringing that. And so what do you mean by federal common law? And why was that something that Powell didn't appreciate or didn't look favorably upon? So it sounds like Justice Powell was more in favor of pursuing insider trading, enforcement actions, or prosecutions through the lens of common law fraud, which we'd seen before the enactment of the 34 Act and Rule 10b-5. And so it sounds like you also said he wasn't a big fan of federal common law. What is that? What did you mean by that?
0: One of the biggest problems about um, Rule 10b-5 is that is actually designed to be a kind of catch-all anti-fraud provision so the language is rather vague there and it's not originally designed to regulate insider trading so i guess justice power wants more leeway and flexibility in terms of regulating insider trading so he prefers the federal common law so the Supreme Court would have more room for interpretation.
1: And so what then happens? What is the case that he ends up deciding that shifts some of our interpretation of what it means to be someone who is involved in insider training?
0: Yeah, I think one of the most most important cases is the Shiarella and then the Dirk's case. But we are talking about Shiarella in this podcast. So I think this, this case has a really interesting fax patent to me, Chiarella was an employee of Pandic Press, which is a financial printer that prepared tender offer disclosure materials, among other documents, and acquiring corporation hired Pandic to produce announcements of corporate takeover bids. In preparing those materials, Pandic used the codes to conceal the names of the companies involved. But Chiarella somehow was able to break the codes. He then purchased target company shares before the bid was announced. And then he sold the shares for more than $30,000 profits after announcement of the bid. So Chiarella was then, hours was later, convicted on the district court level for of violating Rule 25 by trading on the basis of material non-public information. And then the stats, a second circle of Circuit affirmed of his conviction applying the disclosed or abstain rule because under the equal access-based standard, Chiarella clearly lost it as he had greater access to information than those with whom he traded. But the Supreme Court had different opinions to this. Ah. Okay, well,
1: let's get to the Supreme Court here next. But it sounds like Ciarella works for a printing press, and he was able to figure out by breaking codes which companies were about to merge because I guess the printing press was making the documents prior to the deal going through and so he figured out I guess who was merging and was able to trade in the target company and made a profit but he doesn't work for either of the companies is that right, right. That, I, so you're right okay he just works for the printing press right I see okay well that might matter so it sounds like under the disclosure abstain rule he's certainly Falls under that rule because he's trading on the basis of material non-public information, which would have been in violation of the disclosure abstain rule at that point. And so it goes
0: up to the Supreme Court. And what happens? The Supreme Court reversed this case. According to Justice Powell, it is noteworthy, like you just said, Professor, that Shirella was not an employee officer or director of any of the companies in whose stocks he traded. He worked for Pandit Press, which worked for acquiring companies, but not the takeover targets in whose stock Shirella traded. In other words, he did not own a fiduciary duty to the target company. So it is based on this fact that Justice Power reversed Shirella's conviction. The court's thinking is like this. If Shirella's opinion was to be affirmed, then the court should first recognize a general duty between all participants in market transactions to forego trades based on material non-public information. And this is overly broad duty. And it did not arise from a special relationship between two parties described in the federal common law of fraud, so the court refused to impose such a duty. Therefore, by this case, the court has rejected the notion that Section 10b was intended to assure all investors equal access to information. It is just a general catch-all anti-fraud provision, and a duty to disclose under Section 10b does not arise from the mere possession of non-public market information there also needs to be a fiduciary duty between the insider and the shareholders. And I remember a a famous quote from Powell's opinion is that silence is not fraud. I guess this is about the gist of the majority opinion.
1: Ah, okay. Right, very famous quote where he says, silence, absent a duty to speak, is not fraud. So he introduces, it sounds like a new, I don't know if we'll call it an element, but a new sort of understanding that inside disclose or abstain, that general rule doesn't apply unless you have a duty to disclose. And that duty comes from a fiduciary relationship. Mm -hmm. So why does Powell think Chiarella does, why does he not have a fiduciary relationship in that case?
0: Well, Justice Powell thing, he does not owe a fiduciary duty to the target company. So I think that is the key here because the target company was harmed by Sharella's insider trading. But at the same time, Sharella does not own fiduciary duty to the target company. So it's not liable.
1: I see. Right. So he's technically not an insider of the company in which she's trading stocks. Right. And so... Do you agree with that, by the way? Do you think
0: that was a good call that Powell made? I I partially agree with that. I agree that there should be some kind of fiduciary duty, but I'm actually more in line with the misappropriation theory. So I think there should be a kind of fiduciary duty, but not necessarily between the insider and the party that is harmed. I think there should be some kind of fiduciary duty either from between the insider or and his employer, any kind of breach of fiduciary duty will suffice for the insider trading. Yeah.
1: Okay. So, right. That sounds much more like misappropriation, which we'll talk about here in a minute. And so another thing you mentioned that I, I just wanted to ask a question about, which was... An interesting theory, and it's fine if this is sort of beyond the scope of what we need to maybe discuss today. But this idea that the, because he traded in the target company, some idea that the target company is maybe who is harmed by that.
0: Yes. What does that mean? What do you, what did you mean by that? So the target company has lost some money, some profits because of this trading. Because if Shirella didn't know this information, he wouldn't get the profits. So I, I think to this sense, the target company was harmed. I see.
1: Right. Because he's able to make a profit on their private information. Yeah. So they, that company might have an interest in that information remaining non-public. That's an interesting yeah. thing. I mentioned this only because it's a theme we discuss in this class and will on this podcast a number of times. And that is that insider trading is sometimes hard to get our arms around because there are times where it feels like a victimless crime, if there is such a thing, maybe some windfall to someone who cheats. But there is also a stripe of theories related to insider trading that deal with this idea of property that you are trading on, that the information is property that belongs yes. to the target company. So I think is why I asked about that, because that is something that also percolates up in our discussions sometimes.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I do think that's a little different than an uneven, an unequal playing field, which is a lot of what insider trading regulation discusses. People who don't have parity of information, and so that feels unfair. And so sometimes maybe the victim is the person on the other side of the trade. That's certainly a little bit of what we talked about in the last episode with Ben, when we talked about insider trading in the strong versus repeat case, when there was a face-to-face transaction and someone didn't have the information that the other party had so it looked like a fraudulent transaction. What's tricky though is when we get to an impersonal exchange like the stock exchange, some of that deceitful activity gets, I don't know if we would call it cured, but it gets muted because you don't know who you're trading necessarily with and maybe that is in itself means it's hard to be deceitful if you're not, if you don't know with whom you're trading. That's just sort of the buyer beware idea of the marketplace. And so we've seen even in these just two episodes how regulation of insider trading has swung from buyer beware, no insider trading is not really regulated, until the 60s when the SEC starts winning because they get this disclose or abstain rule from Texas Gulf Sulfur. And now we're back to where Powell seems to be narrowing that again. So he's he's, he's sort of tossing the disclose or abstain rule and having a more narrowed interpretation of what counts as insider trading. It's fascinating just to watch this swing over just a few decades. And again, as you pointed out, with a statute that doesn't give much clarity about what insider trading is or the elements that are required to make the case. So was the Chiarella, switching gears a little bit, but was the Chiarella opinion unanimous? What did the rest of the court have to say about that case?
0: Yeah, it's not unanimous many other justice pieces has written some other concurring and dissenting opinions. So that's with the concurring opinions. One of the concurring Justice Stevens, he agreed with the power mandate that the defendant must breach an identifiable duty in order to incur criminal or civil liability under Rule Five. But he wrote a separate opinion in order to stress the fact that had the jury been properly instructed as to the SRL's liability to his employer and his employer's client, the case might have been decided differently. He used the broad language of the statute to legitimize the argument that Sierra's actions may have constituted a fraud or a deceit upon the offer of corporation in connection with the purchase or sale of any security. So basically, he preferred a rule banning use of non-public information, not lawfully available to the market in a very general sense. And he thought Shirella has actually breached fiduciary duty to his employer and also the acquiring corporation.
1: Oh, that's interesting. And so that makes sense to me. He definitely was being deceitful. He was maybe not. He was violating some terms of his employment agreement by uncoding uh, who these companies were that were merging, that probably was a violation of something. And so why wasn't that enough to win this case? He did deceive somebody. I get that it wasn't maybe the company in which he traded, but there is some deceit in these facts. And so why did the court not
0: consider that? Well, I guess the deceit is not, I mean, serious enough to affect the employer or the acquiring corporation. I think maybe the deceit actually harmed, like I just said, the target company, but there mm-hmm. is no fiduciary duty between. So I guess that's the reason why even there is some disease that's not big enough to okay. let Giorgio be liable. Yeah. But what
1: was Steven saying about the jury not considering that? Was that was there an instruction that didn't allow them to consider that maybe he had been deceitful toward his employer?
0: Yeah, I guess this means that the jury has not been Directed by such, the jury was not instructed to consider whether Shirella has actually breached the fiduciary duty between to his employer and the acquiring corporation. So the jury actually did not consider this.
1: So yeah. that means that Supreme Court that wasn't before the court. Then I guess to determine if if that was a problem or not. Mm-hmm. I guess so. Okay, I think that's right. That's how I read Stephen's dissent, which is. Had the jury been instructed, had that been before the court, whether or not a deceit to his employer would have sufficed for a fiduciary duty, mm-hmm. getting us actually very close to the misappropriation theory. But Stevens' dissent, and as we'll talk about in Berger's dissent as well, that wasn't before the court. That wasn't something that was on appeal. The fact of this, you know, what could have maybe been enough of a fiduciary duty. And Powell, again, is trying to cabin that or narrow that to only the duty needs to run to the company in which you're trading. So, I understand. I think where you're going with this. And So, then what then is in Berger's dissent? Is that a different opinion or did he join Stevens in dissent or was did he write separately?
0: Oh, I guess Stevens concurred and just this Burger he wrote dissenting opinion. Actually, huh. I think this dissenting opinion kind of foreshadowed the misappropriation theory because the opinion held that a person who has misappropriated non-public information has an absolute duty to disclose that information or to refrain from trading. The information might have been acquired as the result of his brain to bear a superior knowledge, intelligence, skill, or technical judgment. It might have been acquired by mere chance. Or it might have been acquired by means of some tortious action on its part. So basically, anytime information is acquired by an illegal act, it would seem that there should be a duty to disclose that information. But the court declined to decide this question because the theory had not been submitted to the jury.
1: I see. Okay. So that comes out more, maybe even burgess dissent. But I think you're right. That does sound like a new idea that there could be a misappropriation, so deceit somewhere. Mm-hmm. Some violation of a fiduciary duty, and that it might not matter that that violation runs all the way to the company in which you're trading securities. But there can be some way that you obtain information in a fraudulent way. And however, then you use that information would be enough. It sounds like under Berger's dissent. Is that in your yeah. understanding? And you said this is the theory you kind of agree with the most? Yeah. <laughs> all right.
0: And is that it? Were there other opinions or dissents in this case? Yeah, so there is another concurring opinion written by Justice Brennan. He unequivocally rejected the majority's interpretation of the relevant substantive law. He did not agree that the fiduciary relationship between the buyer and the seller is an indispensable element of a Rule Ten Five b ordinance. Were there other opinions submitted in this case by other justices, or was that it? Yeah, so Justice Brennan had the other concurring opinion. He unequivocally rejected the majority's interpretation of the relevant substantive law. He did not agree that a fiduciary relationship between the buyer and the seller is an indispensable element of a Rule 10b-5 offense. Rather, he subscribed to the misappropriation theory we mentioned just before in Burgess dissent. Yeah, so that is the other concurring opinion. And also Justice Blackman wrote the other dissenting opinion he supported the equal access theory so the essence of his dissent is that the securities laws were not intended to replicate the laws of fiduciary relationships he insisted that the purpose of the exchange act is to ensure fair dealing where the common law does not adequately protect investors but he also conceded that the chief Justice's misappropriation theory would successfully incriminate Chiarella under Rule 10b-5. So that's all the other opinions. Fascinating.
1: What a a wild case with a lot of different points of view. And amazingly, a little bit of, it sounds like, agreement on the misappropriation theory. Mm-hmm. Which it sounds like the only reason it doesn't go forward is that it's not be- properly before the court because of what happened below in the trial court. So interesting to think that that's um, where we are in the early 80s here with Cirella. What is the takeaway after this case? Where does that leave the SEC? What now do we need to show in order to bring an insider trading case after this case is decided?
0: Yeah, so now for SEC to bring an insider trading case under Rule 25, it needs to prove that insider owes a fiduciary duty to the shareholders. So share has really cut back on the scope of the disclosure of same rule. And after share I think we will see the Supreme Court put other bars on the application of this rule, such as the personal benefit test. And this trend will continue, I guess, until the misappropriation theory.
1: All right, fascinating. Thank you so much. What an important and interesting case. And of course we have to highlight again that Justice Powell is an alum of Washington and Lee where we all are (laughs) literally sitting here now doing this work from WNL. So it's equally important for us. And so, I mean, I guess my question for you, given your background, is that is this understanding of insider trading after Chiarella or maybe otherwise. I'm just curious about your thoughts and knowledge about how other how insider trading is regulated elsewhere. Is it handled the same way, for instance, in China where you used to work or will work or not? This is just, again, <laughs> out of my own curiosity.
0: Yeah, I actually had some courses on insider trading when I was studying in China. And insider trading regulation, Actually has a shorter history. it starts from the 1990s so China has announced interior measures for an administration of securities companies to regulate securities companies from engaging in insider trading in order to profit so this is the first time that China has prohibited insider trading in the form of administrative regulation and then the securities law implemented in july nineteen ninety nine has include its guidelines for insider trading legislation. The focus of the determination of insider trading in Chinese securities laws is actually the violator's conduct, but not the fact that the violator possesses insider information. So Article 76 of the securities law has put the insider trading conduct into three categories, and this has actually covered a very broad scope. The first category is using insider information to trade in securities market. And the second category is leaking insider information, which means that the person possessing insider information tells or passes it to a third party and let the third party trade using such information or let the third party pass such information to others. And the third category is insider using insider information to suggest other trading stocks. So from this, we can see that China has tried to cover as broad as it can by making an exhaustive list. I think this is actually a double-edged sword. On the one hand, it will help curbing insider trading with a comprehensive regulation. But on the other hand, I think there is still a fair amount of vagueness in the Chinese securities law, such as some vague definitions and criteria so generally the china's securities law took different approach from the u.s the regulations did not have the fiduciary duty requirements in any of the three categories i guess it mentioned about personal benefits in two of the three categories but it covered a broader scope than the u.s regulations but at the same time like i said has also created more ambiguity So I think China can still learn something from the U.S. regulations in terms of the effectiveness.
1: That is is fascinating. And it sounds like the U.S. maybe could learn some things from Chinese legislation as we consider legislation ourselves of how to maybe make insider trading regulation more clear and concrete. So fascinating comparison. I really appreciate that. Well, I believe we've gotten to the end of our time here and we have covered, I think, everything we needed to cover on this particular important case in insider trading in terms of the important cases in the history of trying to regulate this. Next week or next episode, we will discuss Dirks versus SEC, another very important case written by Justice Powell. But thank you so much. This has been such a fun and informative session. I hope everyone continues to tune in. In the meantime, thanks so much. Thank you, Professor.